Welcome to Reading Rooney, an exercise in collaborative scholarship. On this podcast, you will hear from a variety of book lovers, including English literary scholars, graduate students, and general readers, as we openly discuss, celebrate, and critique the work of author Sally Rooney. I'm your host, Christina Marcucci, and wherever you are, thank you sincerely for being here. Today, I am joined by Marie Trotter, a PhD student in the Department of English at McGill University. She studies Renaissance drama with an emphasis on meta-theatre in both contemporary and historical performances of Shakespeare. Marie also writes arts and theatre criticism, poetry, and plays. In this episode, we explore the emphasis on the value of creative labour in Beautiful World Where Are You, linking it to some of our own experiences as humanities scholars. We also chat about the themes of religion, spirituality, and the search for meaning in the novel. Here's our conversation. So my first broad question is just when you think about the writing of Sally Rooney, what is the first word that comes to your mind? Oh, gosh. Oh, well, I should preface this by saying I've only read one of her books. Mm-hmm. I've only read Beautiful World, Where Are You? The first word that comes to my mind is complex, but I don't know that that's an accurate description of how I feel about her work. Um, but I think that there's something about it that uh, for me, when reading the book, I I felt sort of a a complexity that was resisting easy meaning for me as the reader, that it took a while for me to get into her style and to realize uh, this was her narrative voice and then to settle into reading it. Do you think that's in part because of the form? I think so, yeah. So I started reading this book with no prior knowledge of Rooney as an author. Um, And then I remember from the very beginning just realizing, oh, this is a totally different narrative style than what I'm accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of opaque at first. Um, And she, I think, resists giving you easy information that other authors would make obvious right away. Yeah, there's something surprisingly nondescript, actually, about Mm -hmm. her style of writing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word for it. You cited the themes uh, Catholicism, religion, and the search for meaning as being very kind of operative in beautiful world. Could you speak a little Mm -hmm. bit more to that? Sure. Yeah. So I was uh, doing kind of a quick reread before our conversation. um, And I think that something I noticed this time that I didn't pick up on last time was sort of the skepticism that is underlying in Rooney's writing. Um, And I think this comes out most through Eileen and Alice. Um, So I'm thinking specifically of the scene where uh, Simon goes to mass and Alice goes with him, or sorry, Eileen goes with him. I get the two mixed up. Um, Mm -hmm. Eileen goes with him to mass um, and is skeptical the entire time and is wondering why is this something that Simon's doing and how is he totally unironic about religious faith? Um, So I think skepticism is the main thing that I noticed that Rooney is kind of considering through the character of Simon, what religious faith looks like, but from that outsider perspective. So it's not really what religious faith looks like for an individual, but uh, how it is seen by others who are at a distance from it, I think. Um, And maybe also how it defines their sense of identity and belonging. Like, I think there's Mm -hmm. a long, it's either Eileen or Alice who says that, or maybe even Felix, that like Simon is less anxious or something like that because he has a very clear worldview and like a set of like structuring principles whereas Mm -hmm. I think Alice and Eileen are both quite um confused about their identity and their place Mm -hmm. in the world 
in maybe an existential way that Simon is not. I think so. And I think that they seem maybe envious of that, even if they don't explicitly say it that way. I think Alice ends up being more open to the idea of God and mm -hmm. the idea of religion towards the end of the book. Um, but yeah, it, there's, you know, again, that same passage where Simon and Eileen go to mass and Eileen talks about envying Simon. Um, and it's partly because of kind of the sincerity of his belief, but also because she recognizes, oh, he has this principle in his life that I don't have. Mm -hmm. And could it be that he values God more than he values me? And there's mm -hmm. sort of an insecurity there that comes up, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think that the other characters, the lack of faith also um, feeds into maybe the fatalistic undertone of this novel mm -hmm. uh, or what we would call a lot of people have called the kind of like a millennial malaise or something of the sort. Um, right. In an email to Alice, Eileen asks, do you think the problem of the contemporary novel is simply the problem of contemporary life? I agree it seems vulgar, decadent, even epistemically violent to invest energy into the trivialities of sex and friendship when human civilization is facing collapse. But at the same time, this is what I do every day. So obviously this is a statement about the existential anxieties of working in the creative sphere in a time of imminent global crises. But I think the sentiment about the value of art and literature gets, the, gets also to the heart of like the crisis of the humanities that mm -hmm. we're, you know, you and I are very yeah, much we talk facing. About a lot. <laughs> we talk about a lot. Um, could you explain what the crisis is for a general audience that maybe doesn't know? Sure. Yeah, so I think it's uh, a crisis of anxiety over the value of work and the value of the humanities in a world that does not really create economic mm -hmm. space for them. Um, so, you know, why do we invest time and money in the study of literature when literature doesn't get you a job in the way that the study of finance or technology or science or whatever gets you a job. So there's this need for study and work to be mm -hmm. materially productive and humanities studies don't seem productive in the same sense. Um, I think that they're incredibly productive and valuable in another sense, but it just can't be quantified, right? Um, and I think that, that that anxiety seems to be present in the novel, um, especially in the way you know, Alice and Eileen both mm -hmm. view their own work, right? Because they are both sort of working in the humanities in a sense, um, making totally mm -hmm. different sums of money and facing kind of questions about the value of their labor. And I, I think there's, there's a lot of skepticism about the value of art broadly as like, well, it's not productive in the same way that, you know, like, uh, some, somebody in engineering would be doing something quote unquote productive. But at the same time, we're reading this book. There are millions of people reading this material object. So I think that does kind of speak to, well, there is value. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just for entertainment. Um, and I think that Rooney is exploring a lot of really important uh, and often uncomfortable questions in this novel in the same way that us as humanity scholars do often explore in our work. Could you talk a little bit about your personal experience with this kind of anxiety over studying in the humanities? So you're a PhD student, right? You've been in this field for a while. Um, what has that been like? Well, I've had to justify myself a lot to other people. Um, yeah. 
And I think that that's a common experience for grad students or early career scholars um, in needing to explain why you're willing to invest a lot of time in doing something, again, that isn't, you know, materially, financially, very sustainable, productive, whatever. Um, so I think I've spent a lot of time doing that justification to others, and I'm less interested in it now uh, because it takes me away from the value I believe is in my own work, mm -hmm. right? And the value and the pleasure and excitement I derive from doing literary study. Um, so taking that posture of the defensive, it causes, I mean, it makes me self-guess myself. I'm second guessing all the time, right? So, you know, while that anxiety has been present, I would say it's less present for me now than it was a couple of years ago. I think the longer I've actually been in this field, the more I have felt, first of all, the value of the humanities and critical discussion and serious academic work, um, but also more so my own ability to rest in that and appreciate it mm -hmm. and enjoy it without needing to explain it to others. Um, so, yeah, so in a way I'm actually kind of, uh, not that I'm doing this all the time, but I'm sort of rejecting mm -hmm. the argument from the start. And it's like, I don't want to go there with people. I don't want to feel that I have to defend myself because again, beginning from that posture of defense is I think starting from a place of insecurity. Um, yeah. Do you think that more work needs to be done in terms of democratizing the kind of um, knowledge production that we do in the humanities? If the kind of knowledge and the kind of research that we were doing is like shared more widely with the public in a way that's accessible, do you think it would maybe um, take away or allay some of the, the justification that we have to do for why we're studying in this field? Like, do you think it would just maybe give a greater awareness over what we do, what we actually do? Because I think that a lot of the time for people who are not in this field, it can seem vague, even kind of superficial or, I don't know, uh, self-serving. Yeah, I think, I don't know if democratization is the way I would put it, but maybe openness um, in that if we make ourselves legible and easy to right. understand or easy to access, then yeah, we'd have to do less of that work of justification. So I think partly this is, I think this is really the responsibility of academics in a way, um, because we can't just complain that other people don't understand what we do if we're not willing to explain ourselves properly in a legible um, and accessible way. Mm -hmm. So I noticed this in talking about my own research because there are a lot of jargony terms that are really familiar to me and would be to other uh, academics or other students, uh, but talking to someone outside the field, it's not their mm -hmm. fault that they don't know a super specific word that is familiar to me, right? So I have a responsibility to speak clearly and confidently to explain myself, not to justify, but to explain myself and to engage in that kind of um, open conversation. Um, and I mean, to return to what you were saying about this book being kind of a consideration of the humanities in some ways. I think that because of the email format, what we see is two writers considering ideas and academic questions in a really serious way, but also in a really open, accessible way, right? So if we could have this kind of academic dialogue about our research or our projects or whatever in an email format, you know, in that kind of everyday, accessible, open style, I think that would go a long way to helping people um, embrace the humanities as a truly human exercise and not just something that should stay within the academy.
And in a way, like those email exchanges do feel like an open classroom concept. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with really heady topics. Like mm -hmm. it's not just light and fluffy what's going on in like, I don't know, in your personal life. Like, no, they're actually dealing with things like, you know, the threat to human existence and climate change yeah. and the search for meaning and, you know, all, the, all of these different things, very similar to the kind of work and dialogue that we have in our own classrooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, as you said, this book being read by millions of people and being a work of popular fiction is a way that, as you say, the humanities are really present in everyday public life, right? Um, even if this is not, uh, and I think you've talked about this before, Rooney is not really considered an academic writer by any means, right? And she isn't in the canon yet at this point, uh, but the kind of writing she's doing is engaging a general readership, a very wide readership in these types of serious discussions in a way that people clearly are enjoying, right? Because her books have been so popular. And I think that she's established her fame first, like Beautiful World is her third novel. Mm. I think had she written this first, maybe mm. it would have been a different story, but she's established a readership in normal people, in conversations, which read very differently to Beautiful World. So I feel like by the time we reach this novel, we know that she's, a, she's an amazing writer, mm. but now she is really, I think, flexing a more intellectual side of her skills in a way that maybe in normal people in conversations, it's much more like, uh, it's less, it's less philosophical, I would say. Okay. Yeah. And I haven't read those two, so I actually don't know as to be able to make the comparison, but I am curious to read them now. Um, now that I've finished beautiful world, they're very, very different from beautiful world, but I still think we see the same kind of like tropes coming up of like, themes of search for identity and uh, maybe like anxiety over the state mm -hmm. of the world and things like that. For you, what is millennial malaise? A lot of people have talked about this in terms of, uh, you know, Rooney's work expressing a very millennial condition of living and being in the world, of forming romantic bonds and friendships and to her characters, various forms of labor, but what does it actually mean to be anxious as a millennial? It's an excellent question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was thinking about this and reflecting on it, and I think it connects to what both Eileen and Alice talk about in terms of being constantly tuned in to a flow of information and being constantly aware of the state of the world. Um, and I think that with the rise of social media and kind of, being intensely bombarded with news and information all the time, we don't have the luxury of distancing ourselves from reality as maybe past generations did. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to imply that past generations were out of touch, um, but I do think that millennials kind of came of age and came into maturity in this time of constant hyper-awareness, which is not healthy for us. Mm -mm. Um, so, you know, when you're making decisions about work or study or relationships or family or all these things and have constantly in your mind this buzz of news information about climate change and about war and devastation and everything, right? That is continually influencing you're thinking about daily life, mm -hmm. right? So you can't really separate out your personal daily life from all the information you're receiving about the rest of the world, the global world order and everything that is going on, mm -hmm. good and bad. So I'd say the millennial malaise is this kind of hyper-awareness that is uh, 
that is quite unhealthy, I think, frankly. Um, and yeah, I don't know that I can say optimistically that it's going to get better, or that we're going to be able to move to a healthier consumption of media. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think Eileen and Alice are both tuned into that and are reflecting on that in the book, right? Mm-hmm. That they are experiencing their daily lives and maybe are more anxious about how mundane their daily lives are because they're aware of so many big and important and quite scary kind of global events happening around them. Would you say that Beautiful World actually aestheticizes this like constant influx of like bad news? Because for me, at least in a way, when I was reading this, it was invoking a little bit of anxiety. I feel like it's grading at times. It's just constantly kind of reminding us that like climate change is imminent, you know, like just dealing with very big existential thread. Um, do you think that in a way kind of mimics or reflects or aestheticizes the kind of news influx that we're used to experiencing? I agree with you that it's really present. I don't know if it's aestheticized in a positive way. I think Rooney is drawing our attention to it by making it so obvious. Um, and, you know, just the structure of the novel being these emails back and forth where Eileen and Alice are constantly going over existential questions and talking about news items and reflecting on their identities, their lives, everything. I think she's making us aware of that internal condition of millennial malaise. I don't know that she is. um, Yeah, I I think she might be critiquing it by the saturation Mm -hmm. more so than aestheticizing it. Okay. That makes sense. Right. But I get what you're saying about the anxiety of reading it. Right. But I think at times reading their emails, I thought you need to calm down and think about something else. Right. This kind of obsessive ruminating quality that they both have. Very ruminative. That. Yeah. That is the that's the entire novel is them ruminating and thinking and reflecting. And there isn't actually a lot of action in the book. Right. I was realizing that, too, while reading it over. There isn't a lot of action because they're really trapped in these internal conversations Mm -hmm. you know with themselves and with each other um and again i think that that hyper reflectiveness is not healthy and i think that they draw attention to this lack of action or lack of movement where alice says Mm -hmm. to eileen like you never come visit me or like we never actually see each other we just like their their relationship they're always talking about they're always talking about going to see each other but they never do which is so fascinating it's like a lack of mobilization or, or maybe mm. even that, it's like this feeling of being stuck. Like all we can do is actually talk about it and ruminate about these very yeah. anxiety invoking things. But at the end of the day, is our action actually making a difference? That sounds so depressing, but I'm not so sure that like one person's action, actually, no, I am sure that one person's action is not making a difference in like the grand scheme mm. of things. So maybe it's just, there's something, there's an insular quality to their email exchanges um, with kind of a lack of action. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at the structure of the novel, um, it is quite static through those exchanges. And then things start to move and kind of blow up in their relationship Mm -hmm. when they see each other, right? When they actually make movement somewhere. And that's when everything comes to a head with the relationships. And then sort of at the end, 
I think of it kind of as an epilogue section when it sort of fast forwards a bit to where they are in their lives a little bit later. Yeah. And then you see, whoa, these people have actually changed, right? There has been, even if not in drastic ways, there has been some kind of transition that has been worked. And I think that the movement, you know, both the physical movement, but also, you know, the emotional movement is is the uh, kind of affecting of that. And I think there's also something to be said about the fact that when they finally do actually see each other in person, it's very awkward. It is. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, And they don't, they don't seem to um, (laughs) love each other personally in the way they have said they do. Right. Because they're really quite expressive in the emails. Um, I was noticing that too, on this reread, the kind of terms of endearment they use and the really affectionate language. um, So that at a distance, they're able to communicate that way. And then in person, they're like, wait, who are you? It's so <laughs> who true. are we to each other? Who are we yeah. to each other? It's like, I, I feel like there's something even solipsistic about those emails where it's almost just mm-hmm. like they're using the other as a sounding board for their own oh, totally. anxieties and their own thoughts. Um, but then when they actually get together, their friendship is not what we would think of as like a traditional friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about class divisions and differences in this novel. So Rooney is a self-proclaimed Marxist, but I don't think that Beautiful World is making any kind of uh, overtly political Marxist claim. Um, But do you see an undercurrent of Marxist thought or ideology in Beautiful World? And could you maybe draw us to a passage and interpret that passage? For sure, yeah. Um, So I will say generally first, I think that you know, as as we've been talking about already, um, this book is more about the contemplation of things than the doing of things. So I think that falls in the same way for Rooney's Marxist thought mm-hmm. as well, right? It's that they're discussing Marxist ideas and kind of considering values, but are not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, the pages I wanted to look at are page 38 and 39. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when... Uh, Eileen is writing to Alice about the uh, sensation of being in the convenience shop and describing kind of, so she's talking about, you know, the experience in the convenience shop and then sort of the uh, like zoomed out experience of looking at your reality really in a a shocking way and recognizing, you know, consumption and materialism and all these things. Um, So then are, are you okay if I read Absolutely, a little yes, read. bit yeah. of it? Okay. Um, so I'm just going to read, this is on page 39. She writes, I believe studies show that in the last couple of years, people have been spending a lot more time reading the news and learning about current affairs. It has become normal in my life, for example, to send text messages like the following. Tillerson out at state, LMAO, with multiple O's. Mm-hmm. It just strikes me that it really shouldn't be normal to send texts like that. Anyway, as a consequence, each day has now become a new and unique informational unit, interrupting and replacing the informational world of the day before, um, et cetera. And then she goes on to talk about culture and arts. Um, so it is this awareness that they both had of existing in, you know, a kind of uh, like a consumption culture, right? There's this rampant materialism. They're both recognizing it. And then they both have this hyper awareness of that and are receiving it through the news. And then it just sort of stops there. It stops at the recognition of existing in a system that they find unpleasant and even, you know, oppressive or problematic or whatever kind of word you want to use. It stops at recognition and it doesn't translate into action, Mm -hmm. right? Because they don't change anything about their lives 
after this recognition of, you know, the sandwiches in the convenience shop yeah. or whatever it is after the materialism and the problems of this culture. So for me, that is this passage is really kind of emblematic of what Rooney's Marxist thought is doing in this novel, which is, I think how a lot of um, what I have observed, you know, in millennials um, interested in Marxism is that it's thought and not action. Mm-hmm. Um, the contemplation of the idea without doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm repeating myself here, but I think that that is how I read sort of the Marxist work in this novel. I don't know if this is yeah. the same passage or maybe like later on or on the next page or something, but there's this moment where I think it actually is where like um, Eileen is getting a sandwich that's wrapped in like plastic. And then she's mm-hmm. thinking about how that like material plastic was like is probably not going to be recycled and that there was a whole chain of production that went into like making this sandwich and so that it's convenient for her to eat now and but yeah it's like this contemplation about how we are stuck engaging in this cycle of exploitation um yeah we can't get out of it but there's also nothing that we can do about it per se Yeah. And also that when she recognizes that chain of production, this is really funny to me that when she has that moment of looking at the sandwich and thinking about all the people who are involved in the process, um, there isn't any kind of recognition of the humanity of this economic existence, right? That there are people involved in that chain. I think she's aware of that, but it's just sort of, oh, how depressing that I am receiving the sandwich that was the product of all these different you know, people's labor, um, and she's totally alienated from them, which I think is a reasonable Marxist response, but there's no, you know, being able to kind of envision other people in the world and in her kind of sphere of existence as being endowed with dignity and purpose and meaning, right? It's almost as if the people who made the sandwich just exist for her to have the realization about how kind of tragic this all is, right? And she isn't in, in that sense, you know, she's sort of closed-minded and I think it can be kind of closed-minded as a novel in that the characters are able to contemplate these grand ideas and problems without recognizing the humanity of everyone implicated in them. So well put. Like, those are actual other people with families and friends mm-hmm. and, like, intimacy and their... And valid existences, and valid existences beyond just a theory, right? Or a way of reading, a way of seeing. Or even just um, beyond, like, their job. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with that... Again, with that question of um, the class differences and labor and these different characters and their different jobs anxiety over the work they're doing seems to be a big factor in determining identity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Felix working in a warehouse, um, Simon kind of working in politics, but not really having a very important position at the moment. Um, I don't know, I sense both Alice and Eileen making judgments of the value of other people and the value of themselves based on the kind of work they do, mm-hmm. which I think is a really limited way of looking at human value especially because Alice and Eileen work in this creative sphere and Mm -hmm. maybe have a different understanding of what it means to work with your hands and maybe see that as inherently I don't want to say like debased but I think that they have this um maybe there's this implicit feeling that what they're doing is more like humane than working with Mm -hmm. your hands in the same way that Felix does right Right. And even, you know, Felix experiences working with his hands in this sort of dehumanized way, 
and talks about how strange it is to use his body for this repetitive labor. Um, and that he also uses his hands, his body to encounter um, Alice as a person, right? So he experiences that, but I don't think he at any point is, um, I don't know, devaluing himself as an individual. I don't um, think I don't so. Think, yeah, and I don't think Rooney is doing that either, but as you've kind of drawn our attention to this question, I do think Rooney is, you know, considering the different values of different types of labor. And again, with this constant self-analysis, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of losing my train of thought here, but I'm just thinking like the constant analysis of work without seeing the work in itself yeah. as something that can be good. Right. And the constant anxiety over, oh, what is this job and what is this labor and is what I'm doing having meaning? Yeah. Well, maybe just do it. <laughs> maybe just do it. Like maybe we don't constantly have to think of our work as meaningful. Like maybe it is just mm -hmm. work and that right. can also be okay. <laughs> Obviously, right. it'd be nice if it was meaningful, but I think that like that's also very privileged. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking as well of the passage where, um, Eileen is out with some friends and they're having a conversation in a bar or restaurant about what it is to be working class. And she, I think, kind of sees herself as working class because she has this, you know, pretty low paid job, even though it's in the arts and it's in literature. Um, and then one of the other characters says to her, essentially, like, you're not working class. <laughs> and there's disagreement over, you know, is, does working class mean like blue collar? Is it white collar but low paid? all this anxiety, again, over identity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do you classify yourself? And then how does that classified identity give you a way of finding meaning mm -hmm. or finding value? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really, really well put. Um, those were all of my questions, but was there anything that you wanted to bring up that I haven't covered today? Um, that, I have, mm -hmm. that I haven't asked, rather. <laughs> I am really interested in Rooney's treatment of Catholicism and religion. Yeah. Um, and the search for meaning. And I'm wondering what you make of that presence in the novel. Um, and if you think, you know, I guess both through the character of Simon and then through um, Alice's kind of move towards religious curiosity at the end, like, do you think that Rooney is presenting religion as a viable way of finding meaning? I don't think that she's shutting out that possibility. I don't think she's actively endorsing it either. I think mm -hmm. that Rooney doesn't provide us with many answers, but she provides us with a lot of uh, points for contemplation. So I think yeah. that it's, the, for me, the undercurrent in all of her novels is just this like simmering anxiety and worry about like how to be a conscientious person in the world and kind of like, what is our place in the world? And so I think that in Simon, it's a really... Um, it's a really interesting kind of place to explore this person that has like a lot of certainty over his existence. But I think for me, again, it always comes back to this anxiety and that for me, Eileen's maybe flirtation with, or was it Alice? Alice? No, it was Eileen. It's, it's Alice it, at the it end. It is. Yeah. Oh, could you draw us to the passage? I don't remember that. Yeah, for sure. I'll just, I'll search here. Um, I mean, it's sort of alluded to throughout that she's kind of curious about Christianity and religion. Um, but then in those last two chapters, um, so this is page 329 and 330. Um, so Felix kind of jokes, 
you know, you should tell um, Eileen that you're Catholic now um, because he asked if that if, he asked Alice if she believed in God and she said she didn't know. Um, and she writes, or Rooney writes, um, this is, again, this is uh, Alice speaking. I only feel rightly or wrongly that there is something underneath everything. When one person kills or harms another person, then there is something, isn't there? Not simply atoms flying around in various configurations through empty space. I don't know how to explain myself really, but I feel that it does matter not to hurt other people, even in one's own self-interest. Um, and then kind of goes on to she's thinking about you know does it matter if you believe specifically in god or just kind of in a higher order of things um so i'd say she kind of comes to a position of more curiosity and interest in the idea of god whereas at the beginning of the novel there's this reference to her making fun of simon for his religious beliefs mm -hmm. so she has a little bit of a i'm not going to call it a conversion because it isn't but sort of a transformation yeah a move in that direction of curiosity i would also say that alice is a character that is really struggling with her own identity as um as an author and as a member of this like creative class and you know she's coming out of a break a breakdown that's not to say that that's why she's kind of like looking for meaning mm. but i do think that overall we lack a sense of spirituality in contemporary life at least i do <laughs> i i don't mm. consider myself a very spiritual person but there are moments where i wish i was um i just think it would give me a, maybe a sense of security instead of you know constantly having this bombardment of like negative information and just feeling like trapped so right i think that the allusion to faith or exploration of faith is maybe just um, a commentary on how we do lack spirituality. Yeah, I, th I liked what you said about Rooney not presenting any clear answers to us, but kind of uh, presenting possibilities. I think she's opening a door in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, for me through the, you know, the character of Simon, again, as I said before about... Uh, Rooney kind of exploring religion from this alienated distance in him. Like I found his character really compelling because he does seem the most grounded out of anyone in the novel, even as he has his own anxieties and struggles. Yeah. But there is this sense of there's a meaningful undercurrent, that undercurrent that Alice then talks about. Um, and I know that that is my own experience as a person of faith. So even as I was reading this book and experiencing some of the millennial anxiety and, uh, as we've talked about, right, the stressful email chains and kind of over contemplation. For me, I thought, you know, I can put this down and move on with my life because I have that undercurrent, which is God. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not trying to imply that readers who don't have that don't experience the novel in a good way or a meaningful right. way. But I kind of found not consolation necessarily, but a recognition in Simon. I thought, right, okay, there's something that makes sense about his person. And I think Rooney has... Um, even though it's from this distance, I think she has captured a sense of the security mm -hmm. and confidence that comes with religious belief. I agree. Simon is a very stable character. I mean, yes, mm -hmm. just like any human being, he does have his own worries and anxieties. Yeah. But I think that he's um, he's not as conflicted about like the meaning of his life as mm -hmm. we see in the other characters of this novel. For sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. It was great. That was my conversation with Marie Trotter. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Professor Tabitha Sparks to explore Rooney's feminist narratology. Until then, thanks for listening and happy reading.